you have your Bibles in front of you, if you want to grab one in the pew in front of you, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 4, uh, continuing our summer series through selected psalms. Uh, that's an alliteration there, summer series through the selected psalms. Um, as I was trying to think about which psalm to select next, Psalm 4 is kind of a, it's almost like a continuation of what we saw last week in Psalm 3, um, where David is, is crying out and receives comfort from God in his time of distress. But whereas Psalm 3 had a very specific situation in view for David, this is more of a generic um, template for us of where to go in our times of distress. So kind of a continuation of the thought from last week, but uh, some different angles that uh, David takes on this. So let me read from Psalm chapter 4 now. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how badly do we need these words that recall to mind how often you have delivered us from our distress and have given us relief. Lord, the end of this psalm that you have put more joy in our hearts than they have when their grain and their wine abound, I pray that that would become um, the proclamation of our life, that we would be able to say this more readily, even in those difficult circumstances, we would be able to remember all the joy that we have in you. So Lord, I pray wherever we are this morning, wherever anyone is here this morning spiritually, that they would be carried on by your spirit to be able to say that, to agree with that. You have put more joy in our hearts than they have when their grain and wine abound. So Father, we ask for your spirit to open our eyes this morning to behold the wonderful, wonderful things you have prepared for us in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's something that I want you all to know about me, something that I would like you to understand about your pastor. Um, I, too, can get discouraged. I can sometimes get frustrated. 
I have moments where I can be overcome with sadness. I have moments where anxiety sometimes paralyzes me and I can't even focus on the next thing that I need to do. There are times when I will get angry when the world tells me that my faith is foolish or that this book is outdated and archaic. There are some other times when I get even more angry when those who profess to follow Christ will mock his words and celebrate the rejection of them. Another thing I want you to know, and I felt some of this this past week, that I often take rejection in evangelism far more personally than I know that I should. My fear of man is often far outsized in proportion to my fear of God. Why would I begin this psalm by telling you all of this? Not so that you can feel sorry for me because I trust that my situation is really no different than yours. But I want you to see how badly a pastor whose primary job it is to study God's word, to proclaim God's word, to counsel people with the words of God, to pray to God, to meditate on his word, how badly I need to be reminded of the truths that are found in Psalm chapter 4. In fact, if I am not regularly reminded of these truths, I will just fall apart. I will be a wreck. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to begin, I want us to begin with the end in mind, to come down to verses 7 and 8 of this psalm, with the aim being that wherever we are in life, wherever God takes us in life, that this would be the place that we, where we want to get to. Psalm 4, verses 7 and 8 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. How many of you would like that to be your declaration all the time, regardless of the circumstance? I know that's how I feel, but the reality is that although that's where I want to be, often that can feel so, so far away from my present situation. And so I think that that's why this psalm is here for us this morning. I, hear, I think it's here to provide for us a pathway out of fear, out of distress, out of bitterness, out of feeling overwhelmed, out of what David is going to refer to as the narrow straits of life, into this wide open space where we begin to see and experience the fullness of the joy and peace that only God can give us. I think this is very apropos for me right now. Some of this news has, has trickled out, but I felt very overwhelmed just a couple weeks ago when we found out that we were going to have another baby. Did not expect that at all. We thought four was going to be it, and there were tears, and there was strong emotions, and there was a feeling of fear and being overwhelmed. I felt a little bit more closed in. I needed God to enlarge my view of him to see that what he was doing. Now, understand why we need this psalm. There is no guarantee in the scriptures 
that our lives on this earth are going to be filled with health, wealth, and worldly success. There are some people that will preach that to you if you have enough faith, but there is no guarantee in the scriptures that our lives will be filled with health, material wealth, and worldly success. In fact, there are guarantees in scripture about almost the opposite. We actually find guarantees in scripture about persecution and suffering and opposition for those who remain faithful to Christ. So we need to have a foundation that is far more solid and far more stable than empty platitudes and positive thinking when we find ourselves in those straits of life. And so I think that's where this psalm is pure gold for us. It it is a meal for us to feast on now. What are those truths? What are those deeper spiritual realities which can carry us amid any trial to be able to sing, God, you have put more joy in my heart than all the material riches of this world. So the first lesson that I want us to see from this psalm, the first lesson I think it teaches us is that prayer, the calling on upon God for help, is the surest path out of tight spaces. Prayer, which David is offering up to God here, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Prayer is the surest path for us out of tight spaces, nothing else. I can tell you, sea story, quickly, there might be a couple sea stories in this sermon, but one of the most stressful times for a ship driver or for a submariner is when you have to transit crowded straits. So there are certain busy ports in this world where when you leave port or when you pull into port, you are surrounded by merchants, by fishing vessels, by by sailing vessels that you can't see. And it's your job to navigate without going to the right and running aground, going to the left without running aground, and not colliding into one of these ships. And almost every incident report you hear about happens in one of these busy straits. I can tell you, as a junior officer, when I was on the periscope or when I was driving the ship, these were the moments when I was white-knuckled, borderline hyperventilating, hypervigilant, no margin for error. All I could think about was not colliding and not running aground. Now, I had a, a boss, a department head, who had been through much more, many more of these situations and who, who had gained kind of a, a confidence because he had endured, he had seen what's on the other side, such that it was a, a, a lot less uh, stressful of a situation for him. He had seen the way that the ship had safely navigated time after time after time, such that when he was in that moment, he had a confidence that we were going to make it through that busy strait. Okay, and then you get out into the open ocean and all of a sudden, there is great relief. There is space all around you. There is openness to be able to navigate. David says here, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Now, why did I say that he's actually saying You have given me relief when I was in the straits. These two words in the Hebrew, 
If you had read them as a native Hebrew and in their original language, you would get this picture. These are pictures of being in narrow straits. And the picture of relief is that God is making room. God is enlarging David's capacity to be able to handle the difficult situations of life. David is saying, you, O Lord, when I look back, you have always given me relief when I was in the straits of life. You've made room for me in those moments where I felt like I was most pinned down, closed in, with nowhere to turn. When David calls upon the Lord in prayer, what he finds is that his past experience of God having given him relief over and over again is what emboldens his faith to carry him through during the present distress. In many ways, I feel like our whole lives are kind of this series of straits-type experiences, especially if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to take up our cross and follow him. This whole life will, in many ways, feel like just a series of being in those narrow straits where we are forced to cry out to God and depend on him. We are forced to look somewhere for his relief. Do you ever think of prayer in this way? That all day long, you are surrounded by the pressures of life. You are surrounded by what feels like dangers on, any, on either side. It could go really badly. I hope it goes well, but it could go really badly. And sometimes you're so closed in that it feels like you can hardly breathe. You're in this sort of narrow channel with dangers all around and, and all you can see is trouble. All you can see is the merchant ship that's about to hit you. Calling upon God in prayer is the way that he makes room for us to see his greater purposes, to be able to navigate safely through life. I don't know about you, but when I pray, it usually comes at the end of way too much needless worrying and anxiety. You know what I mean? When you're presented with that really difficult situation and you start to freak out and you think of how badly this could go or you think of all the things that you have to do or maybe somebody shares a, a prayer request in a meeting and everyone chimes in with, have you thought about this? What about this? What about this? And yet then you bring the request to God. And it's supernatural. I can't really explain how it happens, but it's the work of his Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, your blood pressure goes down a little bit. You're able to breathe a little easier, and you begin to see that God is going to carry you through this trial because he's done it over and over and over again. But I also want you to notice here what David is teaching us, that it's not just any type of calling upon God for help. Notice how he addresses God in this prayer. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Friends, the posture of our prayer matters if we are to find the type of peace that David talks about in verse 8. It's not here, oh God, who bails me out of tight spots so that I can get back to doing whatever I want. 
This is not the cosmic vending machine God. If I just press the right button, he will give me exactly what I want. No, instead, the focus here is on pursuing the righteous ends that God has for him. Oh, God of my righteousness. And I take this to be a sort of calibration for us when we come to God in prayer. It's a calibration for our motives. Am I seeking God's help so that I can carry out his will and bring glory to his name and whatever he has called me to? Or am I just looking to get bailed out so I can go back to ignoring him and doing my own thing? Is he the God who bails you out of tight spots or he, is he the God of righteousness? You might have heard this before, but we don't pray to change God's mind. We pray so that God can change ours. We don't pray to change God's mind, but we come to him in prayer so that he can change our minds and he can transform our hearts that we can see things differently. When I call upon God with righteous desires and righteous intentions, what I discover is that whatever my immediate troubles are, they seem to become less significant in light of God's bigger purposes for me, namely his glory. And I think I have become increasingly conditioned as a result of how I've seen God redeem desperate circumstances time and time again in my life, so long as I am remaining in his will, pursuing his righteousness. If I, I could tell you the reason that I am here today, another kind of a, an, another sea story, the reason that I am here today is because of a time in my life when I thought I was a complete failure. I failed the biggest engineering exam that I had to take of my life. It was something that I had spent about eight weeks studying for when I was on the boat. It takes you away from being able to help, help the boat uh, in their mission so that you can devote yourself to this study. They flew me from Guam to Washington, D.C., only to tell me that I had failed this test. Now, in that moment, and I'm sure I did, I'm sure I got really down on myself and despaired and wondered how I was going to tell my boss that I had failed this exam that they spent so much money on me to take so that I could get back to the boat and keep working again, but now I was gonna have to repeat the whole process. I could have let that bitterness just consume me and think that I was a failure and kind of give up on whatever it is God was calling me to, but then God used it. And in fact, God used it to actually bring me to Nebraska. If I would have passed this, I probably would have ended up somewhere else. And in that time when I had to repeat the six weeks of study required to take this test again, I met somebody who would encourage me and fan the flame to continue on in the ministry. And what I'm saying is because I see the way that God takes my failures and he takes those past desperate situations and he turns them into beautiful, beautiful things in his will, I have confidence that when I find myself in those straits again, he will bring the deliverance. And David is saying the same thing here. Whenever you find yourself in those narrow straits, whatever they are, Bring your troubles before the throne first. Don't think of prayer as a last resort. Bring them to God as a matter of first 
importance in confidence that God is going to provide for you, is going to open up for you, enlarge for you a capacity to enjoy him more. Prayer is the surest pathway out of our tight spaces. Secondly, the next lesson I believe this psalm has to teach us. When you are tempted toward bitterness, remember that you have been set apart. When you are tempted toward bitterness, remember that you have been set apart and remember why you have been set apart. The type of trial that seems to be foremost in David's mind here in the psalm is actually a very particular type of trial. This is not just some generic type of trial in his life. And the trial is this. God's anointed has become the world's whipping boy. David, the anointed king of God, has become the butt of all the jokes of the world. He has become the whipping boy. Have any of you ever felt like this on account of trying to be faithful as a Christian, whether in the workplace or in your family or somewhere else in the world? Look at David's cry in verse 2. Oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? I'm not sure how much you feel this kind of pressure in society today, or maybe in your workplace, maybe some of you, in fact, I know that some of you have family or or have friends who are not happy about you being a committed disciple of Christ. If you take a stand for Christ in this world, you will be opposed. We are often made to feel shame today for bearing the honored title of follower of Christ. David was anointed as the king of Israel, but all of you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit as an ambassador of Christ. But the world will make you feel shame for this if you remain faithful. What I want you to understand this morning is do not let this become a reason to give up, to throw in the towel, or to shrink back from being a follower of Christ. In fact, I think it's much better that we would deal with this reality very soberly, especially maybe on a Sunday morning when we are all huddled together with like-mindedness, rather than to just kind of brush over it and pretend like this is not real. The Bible makes it very clear that there is a cost to following Jesus. Young people, Hear me, there is a cost to following Jesus. Later on, turn to Luke chapter 14, and you can read all about the cost of following Christ. Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. Jesus warns his followers of this many times. And if his warnings were not enough, just consider his life. Consider the life of the one you are being conformed to right now as a Christian. No place to lay his head. No extra money in his bank account. Not welcomed in his hometown. 
rejected by his own family, hated by religious leaders who claim to worship the same God. And if you want to talk about having your honor turned to shame, a crown of glory literally exchanged for a crown of thorns. That's the cross-centered life. That's the life of the one we are committed to following. And yet I think we are too often shocked. I suppose because maybe many of us came of age in what we felt was a Christian nation compared to some closed countries where they know to share the gospel is to put your life on the line. And we think that when people think that we are weird or when people think that we're silly or even worse, maybe they call us bigoted or even dangerous on account of the truths that define us. Christians, if you remain faithful to God's word, there will be people who will oppose you, exclude you, laugh at you, speak ill of you, just because of what you stand for. And I know this just just a tiny bit this past week from handing out flyers, inviting people to a Bible club, there were people who said, no, please, I don't want any of this. There were people who said, no, I'm an atheist. Get off of my, my porch. I think they did that to Sammy. Um, but I was reminded of this even more this week when an old friend of mine, who was once a fellow church member with me, made it public on social media that he no longer believed the scriptures to be the infallible word of God. And the worst thing is when many When others in his church who loved him attempted to challenge some of what he said, immediately they were told, even by fellow professing Christians, to stop being bigoted. This man was a hero and was courageous. And so I felt the sting of just how much Bible-believing Christians are opposed by this world. And I'm going to admit to you, in that moment, I had thoughts in my head. Man, is it really worth putting up with all this? But again, we need to know this is not a new thing. It may be a new thing, a new experience for you. This is definitely not a new thing throughout history. Jesus says in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. That's coming from Jesus. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. In fact, it should be quite ordinary. But he says rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Wow. Those are hard words, but also very hopeful words for us this morning. So look at what David's source of comfort and strength is in this psalm in verse 3. Where does he turn when he feels opposed by the world? But, remember I said pay attention to the buts in the Psalms? But, 
Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Know, friends, that the Lord has set you apart. If you are part of the godly, the Lord has set you apart for himself. He has his hand on you at all times. He hears you when you call to him, whatever your trial, whatever your moment of distress. So if you're ever tempted towards discouragement or tempted to throw in the towel because you are opposed for taking a stand as a Christian, remember, you have been set apart for something far better than all the wealth and all the accolades and all the praise that this world could ever heap upon you. Paul says in Romans 8 that because we are children of God, we are heirs and we are fellow heirs with Christ. But he doesn't stop there. You know what he says next? He says, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When you are set apart for God and you are pursuing God, you are pursuing godliness, even the evil that others may intend towards you will be used, will be turned to good for God's glory. And if his glory rests on you, it will be turned for your ultimate good. I like to think of this here as the biblical version of sticks and stones may break my bones. It might go like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but the schemes of the evil one will never thwart God's plan for me. The Lord of all creation is listening to you. He hears your cry when you call to him, and he knows exactly what to do with your life. God has set you apart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in the midst of whatever the trial is, in the midst of whatever persecution, do you believe that God has set you apart for himself? So David is going to teach us out of his own experience how we are to respond when we face that same trial of being mocked or being hated by the world. He gives us a guard against bitterness. And he gives us here two really important lessons. If you look in verses four and five, he says this. How how are we to respond when we face this opposition, when we feel that closing in on us? He says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. And then he says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in. In the Lord. Two really important lessons. One, be angry and do not sin. And number two, look to the sacrifice and put your trust in God. What does he mean by be angry and do not sin? The, the word here is, is, is literally this, this uh, type of being agitated or being trembling, being greatly bothered by the evil that is in this world. David is saying that's, that's okay, that's natural. In fact, 
You should hate sin so much that it makes you tremble, that it makes you angry. But don't take that anger and lash out against other people or lash out against whoever you think that enemy is that's calling you names. Instead, turn that feeling back to God as an acknowledgement of evil, as a lament for the, the pain and the sin that is in this world, but also as an acknowledgement that God is going to take care of it. That God still has everything under control. He says, ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. When you are tempted because of whatever the world is throwing at you, when you're tempted to return hate with more hate, when you're tempted to lash out on somebody, whether in person or as we love to do behind the, the curtain on social media. Instead, be silent and turn to God and trust that he is going to deal justly with whatever that is. When you are tempted to get even, go and get God instead. When you are tempted to get even, go and get God's help instead. See, one of the things I love about the gospel, and I think this is where we, we, we have that turn to make gospel application in this psalm. One of the things I love about the gospel, among many other things, is that it reminds us that all of us were once a part of the same opposition. Do you realize that? The Bible actually says that we were at one time enemies of God. That we were cursing and we were mocking God, that we were disobedient, that we were following the prince of the power of the air, which basically means we were following the same world system. We were once enemies of God, turning his glory into shame, which is the same thing that David feels threatened by here in this psalm. Therefore, we of all people should know that enemies of God are never won to faith by reciprocating the hatred. Enemies of God are never won to Christ because we hate them back. No, the gospel frees us. It frees us to be able to hate the sin and yet joyfully hold out the cure for the enemy. To be able to hold out the once and for all sacrifice that heals all brokenness, that forgives all sins, that reconciles all people to God. The sacrifice for David... David says, offer right sacrifices. For him, that's a way of preaching to himself that God is still the author of forgiveness. God is still the author of atonement. What is most important is not whether David's enemies get their just desserts, but that his own heart would be right with God. I think that the Christian fulfillment of this psalm is that whenever you're tempted toward bitterness, look to the once and for all sacrifice Jesus Christ, remember what he did for you and put your trust in the Lord. But I will admit, we need help with this big time. That does not always come naturally to us, right? We are so naturally inclined to just hate back, to just argue or to, to, to spew out all the things that we believe are wrong with people in this world. The old man is always going to say, like it says in verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? 
Does anybody ever feel like that? You ever feel like the way that the world is going, you're just like, is there anything good that could possibly happen right now? And we just throw this like awful, miserable pity party with each other and we just talk about all the bad things that are happening out there in the world. That is why, and this is the third lesson for us this morning, we must pray to God often. Pray this prayer to God often that God would displace our grumbling with gratitude. Pray that God would displace whatever your grumbling is with gratitude for what he's done for you. I wonder how many of us grumbled over something just this past week that was out of our control. And we just kind of stayed in the grumbling zone. We never really moved beyond this. You know, we do ourselves a big disservice when we simply complain about all that is wrong with the world, yet never stop to consider that God may be up to something through all of it. And he may be wanting to use us to shine as a light in the midst of a dark world. And by the way, when you hear those things in scripture that we're a light in the midst of a dark world, guess what? That means we're gonna live in a dark world. Because God has called us to be a light. So if there's something wrong with this world, it's an opportunity to bring glory to God's name and all that we do. And so, remember, he's enlarging our view of him when we're in the straits. Maybe he's put you in this present darkness to be a light to somebody who needs to hear about Christ. One of my pet peeves in Bible studies is when we spend all of our time talking about the problems that are out there yet we never end up reflecting on what is needed in here in order to see the opportunity out there to be ambassadors of Christ's redemption. Over and over again, what you will find in the scriptures is that God often uses the scorn of this world to put on the display the power of his redemption through his already redeemed people. Think about Peter and John. If you find yourself in this place, this gets me so excited. I've got goosebumps right now. Think about Peter and John when they're told not to preach the gospel again. And they say, well, you can tell us whatever you want, but we actually have to obey God and not man. If you've ever read that passage, you just get so pumped up and excited. It's like, this is awesome. They just stuck it to the man. And they continued preaching the gospel. And yet when we find ourselves in that same place, we're like, oh, that, that's, oh man, I don't think I ever want to share the gospel again. But you find this over and over again in the scriptures. Joseph, when he's in the pit, the pit of despair, you could call it. And what does God do? He exalts him. He raises him up to be the number two in Egypt to bring salvation to his people. Moses and Pharaoh, David with Saul, the stoning of Stephen and how it brings about the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth in Acts. And what about Jesus himself? He had to go to a cross so that he could bring about the salvation of the entire world for everyone who believes in him, including you and me. That doesn't mean that we don't hate the evil. 
That doesn't mean that we're not allowed to tremble and to get upset because of the evil that is in this world. It doesn't mean that we're not to lament over our suffering, but if we stay in that place and it leads us only to cursing and to grumbling, then the bitterness is going to get the best of you every time. Meanwhile, the grace and the mercy of God is going unsavored, and the power of God at work in us is going unseen. That's what you're leaving on the table when you stay in the place of bitterness. And you want to know some really freeing news this morning? God has set you, Christian, God has set you apart to be a light taking his glory into this world, advancing his kingdom, reclaiming space that the evil one has taken over. You were actually created to be a beacon of gospel hope to a world that hates God and remains in darkness. And you want to know some even better news? If your life is hidden with Christ, then that means whatever happens to you, Excuse me, whatever happens to you in this life, whether it's disappointing in the moment or the greatest victory you've ever experienced, all of it, if you are hidden with Christ in God, all of it he is going to use for your ultimate good. Stick that one in your pocket. Go to that one often. And that's why we must pray in times of our distress and discouragement like David does here. Lord, All I feel is closed in, pinned in, suffocating. I just feel hate all around me. Pray this. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Lift up the light of your face upon us. We need the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit to be able to see through the trial to all the good that he has already provided and that he will continue to provide. So if you're having difficulty, if you feel this on a regular basis, that you're having difficulty seeing any of the good, remember, who will show us some good? Pray this prayer often. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You know what David sees? Here we come back to the end. What does David see after he prays this prayer? You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You just think of all the suffering that David endured in his life. And he's able to say this honestly. You have put more joy in my heart. I'm on the run for my own son who wants to kill me, who's trying to take over the throne. The Philistines are after me. Everyone's saying there's no salvation for me in God. And I'm able to say, you have put more joy in my heart than all the world has with all of the material riches. The modern Omaha paraphrase might go something like, you have put more joy in my heart then Warren Buffett has money in his bank account. If someone has all the wealth of the world pouring in, their life seems to you to be idyllic and flawless and effortless, which is an illusion, by the way. Even still, you could be able to say, because you have God on your side, that I have more joy in my heart than any of that. 
that anyone could ever have without him. He is, a relationship with him through Jesus Christ is the treasure in the field that you sell everything else in order to go buy so that you can have the treasure. He is the pearl of great price. The Christian life is the hundredfold reward, as Jesus says, in this life and in the life to come. And Paul puts it like this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. David puts it like this, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. This is very similar to Psalm 3. I lay down and sleep, slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Here he says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I heard one pastor entitled this sermon, The Key to a Good Night's Sleep. What is the key to a good night's sleep? It's understanding the realities of the gospel. The gospel, according to Psalm 4, is that God has provided a pathway for everyone who finds themselves in the straits of life, surrounded on every side, thinking you're going to collide with something at any time. For everyone who feels like they don't fit in in this world, for everyone who fights discouragement and feels restless on a daily basis to know the indescribable joy and to enjoy the rest of a peace that passes all understanding so that you can get a good night's sleep, knowing that God has it all under control. And that path, as I said, is found only in having a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. It's only found in knowing that your life is actually hidden in Christ. It's not about you anymore. It's hidden in Christ to be used for all of his glorious purposes. And if you will take him at his word, if you will take Psalm 4 at his word, there is an ocean of relief. There is an ocean of joy. There is an ocean of hope, an ocean of peace that is available to you at all times. So let's close this morning by praying this prayer. Lord, lift up the light of your face upon us. Show us all the good that you have prepared for us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.